listening to the Writers Forum. I'm Mike Tusi, your host, and today I'll be speaking with author Mayar Amuzagar about his new book, The Hubris of an Empty Hand. Dr. Amuzagar is the author of several previous novels, including Dinner at 1032, A Dark Sunny Afternoon, and Pisgah Road. He was born in Tehran and now lives in New Orleans, where he's a provost and senior vice president for academic affairs at the University of New Orleans. Welcome to the show, Maya. Thank you. Well, let's start off with a question that I like to ask all the time for folks that are authors that are listening. Do you have any specific writing habits as far as what time of day you write or when you write? You're obviously very busy at UNO. <laughs> so if you have any of those types of things that you'd like to share. Right. So, you know, I've been writing since I was 10 and I've, because I write for myself mostly than anything else. I write every day. Uh, on purpose, I make sure I write at least one sentence before I go to bed. So most of my writing done in the evening at night. Uh, I'm going to travel. It's on a plane is always a good place to write. Well, you know, Charles Bukowski, I think, said write every, he wrote every day for 45 minutes to 50 minutes. Most of it he threw away. Right, but me it's, too. <laughs> the it's a good practice, right, yeah, for, yeah, for writers? It is. All right, well, let's jump in on your book. In the current book, you set forth eight different stories, but these stories all have interlocking characters. Uh, is that something you started off with as an idea, or did it develop as you were writing one or two of the stories? Yeah, no, it, it was somewhat pre-designed. One of the advantages of I have, because I'm a mathematician who also writes, is that I'm, I don't think I'm constrained by some of the rules of the novel writing. So in every book, I try to be very different. Uh, and so for this one, I thought, I wanted to write a short story first. I thought, I want to write two short stories. And then I ended up being, oh, can I challenge myself in writing eight short stories that a reader can read independently? If you read as a whole, can the arc of the sort of narrative story can lead you to read as a whole novel? I don't know I succeeded. I hope I did. <laughs> I think you did. You know, let me ask you this. I'm going to assume that English was not your first language. That's very true. So you, there was an interview with an author, with the actor, uh, Javier Bardos, recently from Spain, I believe. And he was talking about having to learn English in order to be in American right. movies. And in it, they asked him how, how difficult that was. And he said, you know, it actually was very freeing because the words didn't have the imputed meaning that they do in my native tongue. Do, have you found that to be true in uh, your writing? I mean, English language is probably the most difficult language in the world because there's no rhyme or reason whatsoever. Uh, I, I moved from Iran when I was about 14 uh, and no English at all. So it was a bit of a struggle. I'm also shy. And for learning a new language, you've got to be pretty brave to speak. Uh, is but I find English language is just fantastic. So many, so many, so many options in terms of describing something. Uh, so yes, in some ways, it's freeing. Uh, you know, my my I only have seventh, eighth grade education in Farsi, so my Farsi is not as good. Uh, okay. Well, let, let me ask you back to the stories then. In several of the stories, you write from the perspective of a woman. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm sure you caught some grief about that from your daughters or your or your wife. It was that difficult? You know, I have four sisters. Okay. A wife and two daughters. <laughs> two female cats and a female dog. So I live in a world of women more than men. Uh, most of my close friends are female rather than male. Uh, I feel comfortable writing in as a female as well. 
No, my daughters actually kind of like it that I'm going to write from their point of view, sort of. Uh, Did you run it by fr female friends and say, I, I, how is this I run, Mostly run it by my wife and my daughters. They okay. tend to, they want to say, mm, that's not how people talk. Or okay. That's not how people at my age speak. Okay. Um, yeah, so definitely. Well, yeah. I'd like to, if I can, I'd like you to get you to read an excerpt for us, sure. if that's okay. Tell, give us, you can give whatever setup you need as to what part this is or what story this comes from. So, so I, so that's there are eight stories, and maybe I can read the first one, probably the shortest, short version of okay. it. Okay, uh, yeah, and give us the title of that so that people right. know. So the title is called Tell Me More, and the idea of this story, the idea of the whole book, essentially, which the Tell Me More tells you, is, is that the issues we're dealing with in a modern time, and if you have time, we can tell you more why I created mm -hmm. this. Please. Um, the idea was that what would, what are the gods that are thinking about us in the time of Trump in some ways, I guess. Um, and are there sort of god of misery and god of knowledge and god of empathy? How are they sort of looking at us, how we're behaving? And I wondered what would death think of us? And this was as part of this because I was going through some sort of aggressive cancer at the time as well. Okay. So it was it was sort of it wasn't existentialist type thing, but you know, going through radiation, surgeries, sure, etc. Sure. Makes you rethink things. Yeah. So that's not that I was dying, I wasn't, uh, but death became more of a person. Well, let me let me make sure that I for the for the listeners that I say this because this was, was fascinating to me. You make these gods, if you will, characters. So right. there's a character named Misery and one named Knowledge and one named Death. And we're going to talk a little more about right. them in a bit but so that they understand. So the first story is Tell Me More. And the idea is that the God of Knowledge has bestowed some of that kernel in one person. But the person is, wasn't worthy of that knowledge. And he's sort of falling apart. But his old friend, a female friend and a lover of past, is trying to save him because he's gone nutty. And she doesn't understand what she's trying to do is actually maybe harmful to herself and to the world. Okay. So he's, as I said, he's freaked out and they're sitting down in the kitchen and there's this little conversation they're having. So Jackie, the person, is speaking. So it's coming from her, the female point of okay. view. All right. And she's saying, but at, at that time, I was just focused on helping him, her friend, Imani. I cannot leave Imani. You know I can't. I can't leave you to be because I love you. At least let me take you to a doctor, maybe. He chuckled sadly. No doctor could fix this. Then he kissed me lightly. I felt his chapped lips and warm breath, and I knew I loved him and would do anything for him. I was sure he felt something too. He put his hand on his mouth as if keeping himself from crying. Wouldn't you step in front of a bullet for a child, for your spouse, for the person you love the most? Wouldn't you consider your own life trivial if it would save your love? I would, but if your action, the armor you provide to stop that bullet doesn't protect them, do you still make the conscious decision to step in front of them, knowing that nothing could save them? How could anything you say or do hurt me, I demanded. You can never hurt me, no matter what you say. You know you don't. Our friendship would suit every obstacle that life could throw at us. So how could sharing a few words hurt us? Would you tell me if you love me? No, it's poison. I can't infect you like I've been infected. If you want you and urging me to do this bidding. You're not serious. God damn it, Amani. Tell me or I'll walk away out of this house and leave you alone with your so-called poison. 
It, all right, so that brings me to a question. In several spots in the book, you write that knowledge is, quote, an infection, close right. quote. In another spot, uh, in a story later in the book called The Swedish Prison, you write, quote, too much knowledge is a curse. It's like poison without an antidote, close quote. You just reference it to, as poison again there. Care to comment on that conclusion about knowledge? Right. So the, so the idea is that these sort of gods deciding, three of them deciding on their own, that humanity needs some help. And the god of misery sort of leads them on. And the god of knowledge who's much younger will give this kernel to the sort of few thousand years ago to us, the human. But we were not smart enough to handle it. Uh, just too much knowledge is, is a poison in a sense that how much is good to know? And is it just information for its own sake is good enough? And this is not being you know, omniscient or omnipotent. It's beyond that. It's sort of knowing the secrets of the world and can we handle it? And obviously my conclusion is no, we're not there yet. And, and it comes across in the book. I thought, I thought that part was really fascinating. Now, when I've interviewed folks about uh, that write short stories, I've always asked, uh, because it's not always clear, if they set up a particular sequence, you know, in the short stories. In this case, in your book, it seems particularly relevant, the sequence that you set up, but could you talk a little bit about your decision of how you sequence the uh, stories? So, you know, the way I write is I, I think about characters for a long time. They live with me. I go sleep with them. I, because I write at night when I'm falling asleep, I'm visualizing their lives with me. So that's my daughters think, you know, everything I write should be a movie. Uh, but of course, they're just being nice. Uh, <laughs> but so, since I've visualized it so much and there's so much with me, I don't even write a single word about them for maybe a year because I'm just having this sort of internal movie that I'm watching with them. Uh, so when I was writing this, I wasn't really thinking about the sequences. I was just as they were talking to me and I thought I remember the next day I might write something. And sort of, I wrote these short stories. I'm a bad short story writer because I, I want to keep continuing. And so I try to control myself. So and if there was any control, it was that. I just told myself, stop, go to the next story. Uh, I didn't write any of the stories in the sequence that's in the book. That's more of my editor's uh, suggestions. Uh, Okay. Uh, but it worked well. I mean, I have a very good editor, and she's done an okay. excellent I thought job. It worked, I thought it worked real well. Well, let me ask you this, because a lot of authors say this, and sometimes they're embarrassed to say it, but I've always been told if you write a good character, the character helps write the novel. Uh, yes. In fact, I had a gentleman in here one time, an author, another author, who said, sometimes I have to argue with my characters because they'll say, I'm not going to do that. Have you had that experience? Oh, oh definitely. <laughs> I never know how things start. I never know what they're going to say. I don't know how they're going to end. Uh, so I never think about how the book... I, I write as organically as possible. Since they, I said they live with... Obviously, they're me. But since they're living with me for so long, they have their own independent thought. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, the last chapter of this book is about that conversation between mm -hmm. the characters and the authors because I constantly have this argument with them. Uh, I really want you to do this. And they say, no, that's just stupid. There's no way I'm going to do that. Uh, now, do, do you read widely outside of when you're writing, other people's works? Oh, yeah. Uh, I read a couple of novels every time. I'm, I'm one of those people who reads two or three books at the same time. Good. And do you ever find that something you're reading cast back on one of your characters and you think, you know what, this is a good characteristic that they should have or not have? Not characteristic, but... Uh, they're lovely authors around the world, and they write amazing things. So mostly they influenced me by saying, oh, I never thought about sort of this way of looking at the world. 
uh, they don't influence who my characters are, but they influence how I think of the setting uh, more than anything okay. else. All right, so one other thing that struck me in, in my physics knowledge, now you said you've got a mathematics background, so you're going to clearly obliterate me here, but um, you play with the space-time continuum a little mm -hmm. bit in this book as well, right? Right. Is that, again, something you thought going in, or is it something that evolved as you were writing? It evolved as I was writing. Uh, to me, was was that you know, in the book, the, the gods are in the sort of beginning of the Persian Empire. And I wasn't thinking about that, but it sort of worked well because I wanted to say, where did the gods, where, where human beings and gods were more closer with each other? And obviously, I, I could have gone much further back, but I thought it was a good place because sort of there's a hint in there, and depending on people who get it or not, I can give away the hint if people can read the book. Part of this was that the Persian king who sort of freed the Jewish people, and that's in the Bible, right? And, and as a whole, and I'm generalizing, the Jewish people have contributed so much to science and arts and everything else. Mm -hmm. So why are they so much smarter? And part of it was that, oh, the God of knowledge gave them something. And the God of empathy helped them to protect them from being killed. Uh, so that I thought, okay, that makes sense if it happens when, when actually historically, right? Some, somewhat correct. It is not okay. exactly correct, but I thought that would work. Well, well, but you also take, and, and it's actually one of the stories in particular. You take a character like Joseph, and it took me a couple of moments to catch on. But you're taking a biblical character and you're moving him into modern times, and he's still around in some shape, form, or fashion, right? Right. right. So you are playing a little bit with this space-time right. continuum. I mean, I love, I love biblical stories because uh -huh. they're kind of funky. They, they just obviously made up, but it's also there were such interesting characters. And the idea that somebody like Joseph was in the Old Testament and had some challenges was actually a person. And, mm -hmm. you know, he can be a different person at a different time, but you know, he can love as much as anybody else and have his own angst like other human beings. Yeah, so the, the space-time continuum is always a fun thing to play with. Okay. All right, so in the book, we've talked a little bit about this already. You have what I'm going to call certain human emotions that you cast as gods, but as characters, empathy, misery, um, and we talked about knowledge a little bit. Um, I particularly like the fact that death apparently has a real yen for coffee <laughs> that you've given him. Um, how do you come up with the idea and what are you trying to tell us about these human characteristics, misery and, and empathy? Because and, some of them fade more in the book and some of them rise a little more in the book in, in prominence. I'm always interested on uh, sort of us as humans and how we interact with each other and our inner thought versus the other thought. We are sort of, I always think we are two different beings at the same time. And this idea of that gods and they have their own frailty, it was important to me as well, that they're, they're gods, but they're not gods, they're, they're us really, and we are gods and they are humans and we are, you know, so that back and forth, that inner thought and the angst was really essential to me. Uh, some of the gods were just, it just, to be honest with you, I didn't design them that way. Some deaths end up being more interesting than I thought it would be. You know, uh -huh. I thought of death more like, you know, okay, he's there, just doing his thing. But it's kind of end up being pretty charismatic. And he loves coffee. And who doesn't love coffee? So, <laughs> and he has a strange sense of humor. He does. So he got a bigger and bigger, or she or they, whatever death might be, uh, got a bigger and bigger chunk of the stories. Because as I was writing, he would just appear all the time, and he had something silly to say or something important to say. So. Well, and the other thing, and you touched on this just now, is that 
and, and I think this is, I'll get your opinion on this, about characters in general. The imperfect character is much more interesting than the character that does everything right, right? Right. No, I mean, it, sort of, I'm a scientist, so I'm always constantly questioning myself. Right. Uh, so we have this sort of external posture that we are so good, but internally, I think most people are thinking, oh my God. You know, well, I mean, I always say, well, am I provost? I mean, what did I do to deserve the job that running the campus? So am I making the right decision while people are listening to me? Well, you know, yeah. So, yeah. so yeah, so imperfection is us, and it's, I think that makes it more real and authentic. Yeah. And, and actually, and if I can say so, the, the characters, the human emotions are the gods, making them a little bit more imperfect and giving them some human characteristics was really interesting. Yeah. It makes it easier to identify. Right. You know? yeah, right. Now, the other thing, a good story requires, I think, at least one thing, and that is universal themes, you know, people, things that people can latch on to. Uh, I thought yours had several, but can you point to a couple that you were trying to portray or trying to get across to folks? Uh, from from the gods' point of view or for the humans' point of view? From the humans' point of view or the gods, either one. You talked a little bit about the gods already and what the problem was there. So to me, the, the, in, this, in this book, there's a lot of acts of kindness, mm -hmm. and people are trying to constantly protect each other. It's something we do all the time, whether with our friends, our family. And so these five or six characters, they're kind of interlinked, and they're all trying to, without telling others, trying to help the other person. And sometimes that makes a big muck of everything, and sometimes they do it okay. Uh, so to me, that's what that's what we do with our friends, with our family, with the people we know as, as human beings, we do that. Uh, so that's, to me, is the universal theme about human beings in general, uh, that sometimes we want to help people, but we don't ask them whether they needed the help. We just yeah. we, we presume. A lot of characters here presume things that they shouldn't have. And, and you know, the character of empathy, though, at least my reading kind of faded a little bit. Like we're not living up to what he or, or she or whatever uh, would want for us. Is that something you were trying to convey as well? Right. I think part of it maybe is the timing of it. Uh, I think, you know, as I said, I was writing this when I was going to, you know, right, um, right. education and radiation, and it was Trump time. Okay. And, and sort of to me, it's like there was a bit of a hardness, hardness and hardshipness in the country. And I felt like people are not as empathetic as they should be, uh, you know, mask wearing, all the you know, everything. I sort of, I felt like it maybe that it wasn't conscious, but certainly looking back at it, maybe unconsciously, I was thinking that hmm, we, come, we have become a bit weaker in the sense of caring about each other. And that may have reflected as I was writing it. I wasn't, I didn't want to make this too sort of a empathy becoming this all taking over and you're so kind and you just touch a person and a person becomes nice. There's a bit of it there, but I thought too much of it, it makes it too too movie-like. and uh, too Yeah, yeah. I, I, again, I think that wouldn't have been realistic. But I, my take, and, and I'm, I was very um, interested in the novel and the way you laid it out, or the, the short stories, is that we're not living up to what they want of us about knowledge and we're really not living up to what they want of us about empathy. Which makes misery a lot happier about things, but right, right, right. <laughs> all right. So let's. Um, I'm going to get you to read another excerpt for me here in a minute. But there are a bunch of interesting comments by characters that also resonated with me. And in a story call entitled "This Life," you write this quote: "Quote, everyday realities are being debated as if truth, like other perishables, can decay." Close quote. 
Um, is that a comment on our current political polarization? Definitely, because you know, there are studies after studies about decay of truth and lack of, you know, uh, you know as you heard the past four, well, four years ago, a year ago, for four years we heard all that, so yes. And, and definitely explicit. <laughs> okay. And I like the way it was presented, too. All right. Can I get you to read another excerpt uh, from the book? Sure. Um, maybe I read from this slide, maybe, since okay. you quoted it. So take me a second to find it. There it not, is. Not a problem. So this life is really about um, this person who was, for a short while, God of empathy for a very short time. And he felt very invincible, as we do as when we're young. You know, when you're children, we always think nothing's going to ever bad happen to you. And I thought about myself as well as a teenager, like, I'm perfect, right? And this, he is having issues with his health as soon as he becomes human. And in some ways, I don't write about myself, but probably these chapters are most about me than I've ever written. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> some of it is real, some of it is obviously fiction. But the idea that... Uh, I did a month of radiation, and it's a long, you know, long month, uh, you know, pretty much every day. And your mind gets kind of fuzzy and funny, and you sort of, life becomes a bit surreal. So this little part is just a beginning of this life. This is that surreal part of this person's going through. Okay. Um, Go ahead and ring the bell, the woman says. She somewhat reminds me of the nurse from my multitude of visits to the cancer center. She's not a tall woman her head barely reaching the counter that separates us. A small hairpin pulls her short, dark hair even further back from her face. She smiles, her eyes focused, and says, looking at the silver bell, go ahead. The bell is small, but looks heavy, shining under the white light of the hallway. It's secure within a polished wooden structure dangling like a hangman. The hammer within it is round, holding a thick white rope. Pull the rope hard, but only once, she advises. Would it matter, I ask? Matter? She looks at me, tugging on her uniform. Yes, would it make any difference, I ask, hoping my insistence will result in answer I want, I need. I mean, looking at the bell and not her, but as I turn to face her, she lowers her gaze. I hope so, she replies. Her voice sounds thin and it fades out. I mean, would I better afterward? I cannot answer for you. You have to pull the rope and find out. But what am I doing? I touch the rope and feel its heavy, coarse texture. I pull back immediately, afraid of disturbing it. You're getting ready for the next stage, she offers, and displays a quick smile behind her words. But what is the next stage? She shrugs. It feels late, and I'm becoming impatient. Where are we? I ask, looking around this vast, unfamiliar space, even though I feel it should be known to me. There is no one around, and our voice echoes as if the reverberation is needed to solidify our presence. Should, should I go on? Okay. Yeah. I feel strongly that we have spent many weeks together. But perhaps it was not her, but another nurse who was part of the crew that I saw every Monday through Friday and two Saturdays of the month. It doesn't matter, because at the moment, she's like my nurse. I feel I know her, even if she doesn't know me. Another woman appears and stands next to my nurse. She must be my doctor then. I look around to see if there will be others, but it's only the three of us now. My doctor is holding a large manila envelope. She's wearing a white blouse, and I notice a small tear in the seam. It's very tiny, so she must not have been seen it when she dressed earlier. She was about to hand the envelope to me, 
but a slight shake of her head from the nurse changes her mind. She puts the envelope down on the counter, takes out the pen from her pants pocket, prints my name on it. She has elegant handwriting. The words, large and bold, stare back at me, waiting. Where are we? I ask again, hoping the doctor would tell me. Perhaps the answer is hidden within the envelope. I want to reach out and grab the packet, but I cannot muster the courage. You're where you're, where you're supposed to be, she replies, and then quickly adds, it's time. The doctor looks at the bell and then puts her right hand flat on top of the envelope to emphasize the point. Then she adds, you did well. Yeah, that That's great. That section was very Kafka-esque of me. You know, he's trying to figure out, trying to figure out, doesn't know where he is. Um, so I really enjoyed that one Thank as you. well. All right, so I'm curious. We're going to end with this, I think. I'm curious about something else you do in the stories, and that is you repeat certain phrases, okay? Some characters repeat. So, for example, I know comes up periodically. Or you use a word, in this case, spenta. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that correctly. But spenta in one story is a park. It's the name of a restaurant. Uh, and in another, it's the name of a, uh, a bartender. And then it's part of a story title towards, right. the, towards the end. Uh, in fact, in the final story, you even have characters make fun of the fact that you have used this word and they don't know what it means. Mm -hmm. What purpose were you seeking in, in doing that? Uh, <laughs> and does spenta have, I mean, I haven't looked it up, does spenta have some other meaning? I think Spenta has some uh, old, um, maybe I think ancient Persian uh, okay. meaning, right? I don't remember, but it was it was a bit of a internal joke with joke within me and my characters. Mm -hmm. uh, as I wrote the last uh, sort of short story is about that conversation I've been having. Sometimes I write about a character and then I don't write a lot about them or they get edited out in the editing process, and then I hear back from them, and they're kind of angry at me for sort of editing it out. So the last story is about them coming back, and sort of, when I started initially, I wasn't I used the word spenta only once or twice. But then when I finished it, almost finished it, and I was writing the last chapter, which is actually wrote the last piece as well, they came back and complained, and uh, sort of as a joke, I was like, fine, I'm going to actually put Spenta everywhere because that'd just be a joke between me and my characters, not from this book, but also from the books previously. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's where Spenta Circle, Spenta Park, Spenta the Person, uh, Spenta Restaurant. Uh, so there are lots of them. So, uh, yeah. so it was more of a joke, really. Private joke. And you show up in the last, in the last chapter. I show as up and author, I don't write. Right, yes, as yeah. the author sitting yeah. in the corner and then right. stepping into his study. Right. right. Uh, that was sort of a, I said, you know, I think about them like this, not in a cafe, but mostly, you know, when I'm sleeping. But so that was that sort of real conversation in my head. Okay. Well, I, I'm sorry, but this is all the time we have for today. Um, you've been listening to Writer's Forum. I'm your host, Mike Tusa. And today I've been privileged to speak with author Mayar Amuzagar about his wonderful book, The Hubris of an Empty Hand, uh, which I think you can pick up. I got my copy, I believe, at the local Barnes & Noble. I think it's at, you can pick up certainly on Amazon as well. Definitely an Octavia uh, bookstore. And you have, do you have your own website? I do have my own website. What is that website? It's amuzagar.com, A-M-O-U-Z-E-G-A-R.com. Well, thanks for being with me today. Thank you.